Would you take your Bibles with me and uh, we'll turn to Acts chapter 17. And if you're familiar with this story, uh, you'll want to pay particular attention to it because I'm going to take you down a little different road than maybe you're used to in uh, unpacking Acts chapter 17 and Paul's experience at Athens. So uh, follow along with me on the screen or in your Bible as I I read. Beginning at verse uh, 16, I believe it. Yeah, 16. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see the city was full of idols. And so he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. And a group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to dispute with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Now that word babbler is is the image of a little bird that kind of flits on the ground and, and picks up a piece of thing here and there and everywhere. And basically they're, they're insulting Paul. They're saying, what are you dabbling in now? And what's your latest thing? And they say, what's this babbler trying to say to us? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. And they said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Oropagus where they said to him, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? You're bringing some strange ideas to our ears and we want to, to know what they mean. All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas, as if they had nothing better to do. (laughs) And then verse 22, Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Oropagus and said, Men of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, notice he doesn't call them idols here. He says, objects of worship. He's not insulting them. He's coming alongside them. I even found an idol or an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. Now, what you worship is something unknown. I'm going to proclaim to you. Let's pray. Father, Lord God of the universe, thank you for being with us and in us. Help us to be sensitive to the presence of of your Holy Spirit. And we ask now, Father, that you will give us a greater vision of yourself so that in seeing you more clearly, more rightly, that we will desire you. And in desiring you, we'll love you and we'll love you and we'll want to serve you for your glory and for our good and for the sake of others. And we pray this through the great and matchless name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, as I mentioned earlier, uh, The last 18 years I've been at Malone with students. Before that I was an army chaplain with soldiers. So much of my career has been as a chaplain. Not a pastor over a church, but a chaplain pastor with people, one-on-one and in small groups. And I found that early on with those transient groups like students and soldiers, they are very transient. They could be here today and gone tomorrow. Soldiers could be transferred. Sometimes they're gone the hard way, forever, someone brought, reminded me in combat. And then there are students, you know, they can graduate or they may transfer or they may decide to drop out for a while. You know, there's reasons for that. But I found that soldiers and students are very transient. So I found that the longer I waited to get to know them, sometimes I missed a lot of opportunities. So I devised a way, three questions I thought that were 
good questions to get to know them as fast as possible. And so I would meet with them at meals or over coffee or out in the field when we were doing combat scenarios or when I was in the, uh, on campus walking along the, the sidewalk and so on. And I would start to talk to students and I would ask them three questions. Number one, what makes you tick? What's your passion in life? What gets you up in the morning? What gives you energy? What gives you a buzz? <laughs> and then the next question is what ticks you off? You know, what is it that just, I mean, we all have fuses. Some are long, some are short. Uh, What's yours and why? So their answers to those two questions give me a pretty good idea what their value system is, what excites them, and what upsets them. But then the third question is the most important question I could ask them or anyone. If I wanted to get to know you and take you to lunch or to Starbucks after the service, I'd get to the third question with you too. And I would ask you, what comes into your mind when you think of God? What's your picture of God? It means everything. Do you know that? A.W. Tozer, who was a former pastor, he died in 1963, but a self-taught theologian and prolific writer, once wrote in one of his books, he says, what comes into your mind when you think of God is the most important thing about you. What you think of God is the most important thing about you. And why is that? Well, you see, there are lots of reservoirs of information out there that we draw from to form our idea of God. Sometimes it's painful experience where God was maybe where we sensed he was detached or uninterested, and so therefore God must be detached and uninterested. He's got a universe to run. Who, does he, who am I that he would care? See? Um, sometimes we get reservoirs of information uh, from TV preachers or stuff that happens on cable TV or what we read in books and that sort of thing. You see, when our picture of God forms in us for whatever reason and what information we draw from to contribute to that picture, it it deeply impacts how we relate to God. If God is, if we see him as detached and disinterested, then we probably aren't going to feel very intimate with him. We're not going to pray to him very much. And you see, If that image of God then, a picture forms under certain circumstances, then that picture of God begins to rub off on me. If God, for example, is down on a particular group of people in our culture, for instance, then I probably will be a little less interested in them as well if God doesn't like them or doesn't like what they do. So you see, it's how, it affects how I relate to God, but then it also begins to rub off on me in the way I relate to him and relate to other people. So we have to be careful what our picture of God is. And is it accurate? So what is your picture today? Is our image of God a sugar daddy? I mean, you know, when we need something, we run to him, 
and pray like crazy. And then when we get it or we don't get it, then we just kind of walk away and do our own thing. Is he uh, Mr. Cranky Pants, you know? <laughs> you know, he's watching every move. And if I step out of line once, he's, he's going to nail me. He's going to corral me and get me back on the straight and narrow. Um, you know, there's a lot of different pictures of God. Detached. Disinterested. Do you image him as um, Gandalf the White? <laughs> or maybe um, Colonel Sanders? Or the image of the Quaker Oats guy? Is that how you see God when you think of him? I know we're not supposed to think in images of God. That's a violation of one of the Ten Commandments. But let's face it, we're human. And, and when we think of God, something pops up. Who he is, what he is, and how he relates to me. And how we gather that information about him, right or wrong, is very, very important. So let me ask you, what is your source of truth? Hopefully, it's the Word of God. It is the Word of God. This is what tells us about him. And more importantly than that, the Word points to Jesus Christ, who is the image of the invisible God. So if you want to get to know an accurate God, have an accurate picture of who God is, you've got to look directly at the Lord Jesus Christ. The quality of your life very often depends on the quality of your thoughts, and more specifically, your thoughts about God, and more specifically than that, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now think about the Apostle Paul, because I want to use Paul now as an illustration of what I'm bringing up. The Apostle Paul was a Jew, and Jewish boys were raised to pray this prayer every morning. Lord God of the universe, thank you for not making me a Gentile. Yeah. Thank you, Lord, for not making me a slave. And thank you, Lord, for not making me a woman. <laughs> Sorry, ladies. But you really, you had no identity in yourself. You, you were property in this day. Which I think accents all the more of what Jesus did, what Paul did to elevate the value of women and children and so on. But that's the way apostle, the apostle Paul was raised as a Jew. And then as a Pharisee, it was just even further ingrained that kind of snobbishness, if you will. They were experts in the law, the first five books of the, of the Bible, the Pentateuch. They were masters of what righteousness was supposed to look like in real life. And they constructed, they went way beyond the 10 original commandments and expanded it to a list of over 600 little rules that would demonstrate righteousness. And so that system became all law, no grace, and Pharisees were not fun people to be around, as Jesus found out. <laughs> all law, no grace. And Paul was one of the best Pharisees around. And so when it came time to eradicate or put down this new movement of followers of this Nazarene criminal that was just crucified, they tapped Paul on the shoulder 
And so Paul went out causing trouble for these Christians. And um, we see him at the, at the rock pit with Stephen, the first martyr. Now, Paul didn't throw stones that we can see, but he was holding the coats of those who did throw stones. And so we know he was an accomplice to murder, to, of course, in religious law, it was martyrdom. And Stephen was, was, was killed. So Paul was an accomplice. And so when he was finished there in Jerusalem, he decided, well, let's go to Damascus in Syria and do the same thing. Well, he never made it to Damascus <laughs> because he had an encounter with the risen Christ, which absolutely was a Teutonic shift in his life. It radically changed everything that he saw and the way he thought and the way he felt and what he did. It was a paradigm shift, 180 degree turnaround. And Paul went from persecuting Christians to the wilderness to be with the Lord Jesus, Galatians 1.17. Three years, he was in the wilderness of Arabia. Scholars believe that he went there because having not been one of the original 12, he needed credibility of a disciple of having been with Jesus for three years. And so he went there. And then when he came back, he went to Jerusalem and he hung out with Peter for 15 days. What do you think they talked about? Peter, tell me everything you know about this Jesus who I just witnessed on the road to Damascus three years ago. And you know who else was in that household at that time? James, the brother of the Lord. What do you think Paul asked James? (laughs) James, what was Jesus like growing up? Did he ever disobey his mommy? (laughs) What was he like as a teenager? when those hormones began to pop. (laughs) What was Jesus like when he hit his thumb with a hammer? (laughs) So Paul, having encountered the Lord Jesus on the road, and then being with him for three years in the wilderness, in silence and solitude, and then coming back and hanging out with men who walked with Jesus for three years, Paul's vision of Christ was radically changed radically changed. In fact, let me throw this comment at you. It's from a friend of mine, or not a friend, but my counterpart out at Westmont College when I was a chaplain, Ben Patterson, and he writes this, no idea is more determinative than our understanding of Christ. All of our prayers and our faith will be as big or small as our grasp of his greatness. And if there was a title to this message today that I'm giving you, it would be grasping his greatness. Getting a right picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. So we see Paul after these experiences, and later in his life, writing letters to churches that he planted. And we find statements in those letters that are absolutely profound. He said that, writing to the Philippians who were having trouble in their local church, he said, have this mind 
in you that was in Christ Jesus, that although in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, in other words, to hold on to, he restrained himself from exercising his godly attributes. But he took the very nature of a servant and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Where did that statement come from? (laughs) It shows you an image of the radical change that took place in Paul's life. Colossians chapter 1, he's writing to Colossians. They're too having struggles. And he says, he is the image of the invisible God, firstborn over all creation. He created all things, whether things in heaven or on earth, visible or invisible, whether thrones, powers, rulers, or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. And he's the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead. In him all things hold together. And God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and to Reconcile to himself all things, whether things in heaven or on earth, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Where did that profound thought come from? It came from Paul's seismic shift in his thinking about Jesus. And if Paul didn't write Hebrews, he knew, I think he knew the guy who wrote Hebrews, where the guy says, in these latter days, God has spoken to us by his son, through whom he made the universe... And through whom he appointed heir of all things. And he, the Son, is the image or is the exact representation of his being and the radiance of God's glory, sustaining all things, that is, all things in the universe, by his powerful word. That's profound. That is profound. And isn't it interesting, the prayer that Paul had been brought up to say every day as a young Jewish boy and continued as a Pharisee, you know, thank you for not making me a Gentile, thanks for not making me a slave, thanks for not making me a woman. On more than two occasions, Paul said, in Christ, there is no Jew or Gentile. There's no slave or free. There's no male or female. For Christ is all and is in all. What a reversal of thinking about the person of Jesus Christ. So, let me take you to Acts chapter 17. And I want to unfold this from a little different perspective because I want you to see how this plays out in everyday life and specifically in the life of Paul. What he's thinking determines and shapes what he sees. Now, notice Paul is in Athens and he's waiting for his two guys to catch up with him. They'd been in Berea, not over there, but Berea over there, and they were in ministry, and it so often happened, they got into trouble because of what they were preaching and teaching, and they were invited to leave before they got hurt. So Paul left, his two buddies stayed behind to pay off the tabs and uh, hotel and all that, and then they were going to rendezvous with him in Athens, and they were going to start another mission. While Paul's waiting for them, He's walking around, looking over the city. And it says he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. Now, why do you think the the writer of Acts mentioned that? He saw idols. Nothing else. He saw idols. You see, when you go to a city for the first time, 
don't you notice, don't you see what you think about? If you're an architect, you're looking at architecture. If you're a gardener, you're checking out the landscaping and the flowers. If you're into Starbucks, you're looking for a cafe or, or a restaurant or something. What you think determines and shapes what you see and what you look for, what you look at. Paul was drawn to the idols. Now, the idols are just cheap substitutes. And the Greeks, these Athenians, had lots of them. In fact, the whole landscape of the city, the cityscape, was full of them. And the word for full is the word from which we get our word jungle or forest. So as we look at a forest and see nothing but what? Trees. Paul was looking at the cityscape and seeing nothing but idols. Big idols. Little idols. Wide idols. Everywhere. Made of marble and gold and silver, the finest materials in the world, and they were designed by the greatest craftsmen in the world. One statue was to the Ar- goddess of Artemis, goddess of war, named Artemis. She was so big that the spear she had in her hand had a gold point, and when the sun reflected off that gold tip, it could be seen 40 miles away. These were idols, <laughs> serious idols. And that's what Paul saw. But it doesn't end there. What Paul thought, was thinking about, shaped what he saw, idols. But what he saw then shaped what he felt. Notice it says he was greatly distressed. Remember who's writing uh, the book of Acts? It's Luke, a physician, a doctor. And he chooses a word from medical life to describe greatly distressed. First of all, is mega, greatly. And then a word from which we get our word for seizure or spasm, spastic. So Paul was seized in his soul as he looked out over these idols. He was probably angry. How dare you reduce the God of this universe to a stupid stone statue? <laughs> But he was probably sad. How these poor Athenians, they're being led off of the wrong path to a dead end. Whatever he felt, and all of the above, he was greatly distressed, almost seized, out of control emotionally. But it doesn't end there. What Paul thought determined what he saw, what he saw determined what he felt, but then what he felt shaped what he did. Notice what he does. He doesn't just walk away and shake his head and, and you know, raise his shoulders and say, oh, these Athenians, they will be Athenians, idolaters, pagans. No. He engaged them. He engaged them in their culture, in their religious point of view. He crawled right into their lives, embedded himself so that he could communicate the gospel, the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ, including his resurrection. He says, what you worship as unknown, I'm going to make it known to you. And that altar, by the way, that was made to the God-known God, that was just in case the Athenians forgot somebody. You know, you don't offend the gods. (laughs) And so, as a precaution, they designed an altar to the unknown God, so he would be appeased, and they wouldn't get in trouble later. So Paul uses that very statue as an inroad to share the gospel with these guys. Now notice what he does. 
he goes to the God-fearing Greeks in the synagogue and the Jews. So he went to the religious group, the spiritual folks. But he didn't stop there. He went to the marketplace and he, he interacted with the shoppers. And then he didn't stop there. He went on to the Oropagus, which is where the PhDs of the day hung out, and the attorneys, and the thinkers, and the power brokers. And they'd sit around talking philosophy all day and new ideas. Paul went right in there. So he engaged all these different kinds of people at their level, in their context, in their culture, to show them who this unknown God is, that is, Jesus Christ who died for their sins and rose again from the dead. So is this making sense to you, how it comes together? Are you connecting the dots? This is why Paul said, don't be conformed any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That is, what you feed your mind starts to determine everything else in your life, what you see, what you feel, even what you do. But it all starts back here in your presuppositions, what you believe, what you know, what you choose to think, including your image of God, your picture of him. Now, lest you think this is rhetoric or just theory, let me bring it home by sharing a personal anecdote. I don't like to do this, but it illustrates my point exactly not just with how it happened to Paul, but how it happened to me. About six years ago, I went to the doctor for a routine examination, and then there came the meeting afterward with my wife and I. My wife's a nurse. And the doctor said, we found some tumors. A couple days later, the report from the lab came back, Randy, you have esophageal cancer. And the doctors down in Canton, some of them were my friends, they said, Randy, get to the Cleveland Clinic as fast as you can. That's a rare cancer, it's an aggressive cancer, and we don't do enough of it down here in Canton. They got everything at Cleveland Clinic. So within a few days, I had an appointment with the leading world-renowned surgeon and the doctor who supposedly was the go-to guy for esophageal cancer in the world, literally. They flew him around to different medical schools around the world to lecture on esophageal cancer treatment. So we walk into his office, and, and he's not the most enjoyable person. <laughs> he had a terrible bedside manner, or chairside manner. <laughs> he walked in with my file, and he said, Randy, Mr. Heckert, he said, you esophageal cancer. He says, you have a 5% chance of surviving. And he said, um, here's how I do it. And if you don't like it, then go to another doctor because I don't modify my treatment for anybody. He says, we're going to take you into surgery within a week. We're going to cut in through your neck. We're going to cut in through your ribs. We're going to snip your esophagus at both ends, pull it out, restretch your stomach, and attach it to your throat. You're going to be on a feeding tube for six months as the rest of that heals, and you can take food in again. And then he says, we're going to, we're going to fry your body with chemo and with radiation. We're going to take you to the brink of death so we can rebuild you without cancer but it's gonna take that kind of drastic action. And of course, my wife and I, you know, I don't care who you are, news like that 
will knock you right off your slats. I mean, and it doesn't have to be a diagnosis. It might be a divorce. It might be the loss of a job. You've, you've been hit between the eyes with news like that. But in my case, I want to remember this so vividly, I'll never forget it. Because within moments, I mean minutes of him giving me that news, my, yes, my life looked like a compass when you shake it up. You know, it's all over the place. But then gradually it begins to wobble and spin its way back to true north. And that's how I could sense my soul as I began to reflect on the scriptures I'd memorized and the picture of Jesus in my mind, the image of God in my mind. When I thought of God, what come into my mind? The most important thing about me because it showed that day. But the peace that passes all understanding flooded my heart and my mind, guarded my heart in Christ Jesus. And I said, okay, we're ready to go. And I remember how God, and, and, and actually people would come up to me after they heard the diagnosis and so on and say, Randy, we're going to pray for your healing. And I said, well, that's okay. Pray for it. And God can pray, heal me in a moment. Just speaks the word and I'm done. I'm, I'm healed. But pray more deeply, more specifically, that God will allow me to take the journey with him and learn all that he has for me. Because he will teach me some things through suffering and pain that I never would learn in any other circumstance in my life. So I call it the best worst year of my life back in 2010. And God did amazing things in my heart and took me deeper than I ever would have dreamed. And I thank him for that. But it started back with my picture of God and how close we became so that I wasn't going through that disaster alone. But I knew he was with me in every way possible. And in those late nights, three in the morning, and you're so weak, you can't even hold a Bible. You're just a skeleton laying in the bed. And there's no one around. The lights are out, and you hurt so bad. But then the scriptures would start flooding my soul, and the Lord and I would have the most precious times of intimacy together. And he taught me so much. But that's what he can do when we make time and space and think rightly about him. I don't know, uh, one of the other ways that I, I, I've learned to write, think rightly about God is, is, for instance, are any of you astronomy nuts? I love astronomy. And do you know if you go to nasa.gov, they describe the, the world's, uh, the universe's greatest star that they know of. It's called a red supergiant. And to us, it's just a pinpoint of light. But if we were to go out to John Hopkins Airport and get on a 747, and fly around that star once at 600 miles an hour. Do you know how long it would take us to come back after the first trip? 1,100 years. Now, I don't know. I can't get my head around that, but that's how big a star is. And the Lord spoke it into existence, and the Lord, and he, and the Lord Jesus sustains all things by his powerful word. What is cancer to him, <laughs> for crying out loud? What is anything to him? Do you know that... And let's bring it even home further. Do you know that 
it, takes, it would take 83,000 computers all linked together 45 minutes to simulate one second of your brain activity. You are fearfully and wonderfully made, friends. <laughs> and Jesus just spoke you into existence. He loved you into existence, if you will. And you see, when I started putting the ducks in a row and getting my dots connected, then I started laying there thinking, oh, the Lord Jesus, he sings over me. He dances around me. He delights in me. He knows how many hairs are on my head, and that's not hard in my case, but, you know, he knows. And he loved me into existence, and he is now in me by his spirit to to shape and mold my life so that it's more like his and so I can live life in its fullness here. And then it just goes on forever. And he writes my name on his hand and he catches my tears in a bottle. We could go on and on and on. Oh, it's a life changer, friends, when you get a greater vision of the Lord Jesus Christ because he shows us the Father. So as I wrap this up, I can think of no better way to leave you than with another verse that comes from Paul in Colossians where he says, may we be united in heart and united in love and encouraged in heart so that we may have the full riches of complete understanding so that we may know the mystery of God, namely Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Do you know what it's like for us to try to understand the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? It's like a flea trying to understand the internet. <laughs> but I'm telling you, you want to think rightly about God. Check out Jesus. And you might be a seeker here today. Check out Jesus Christ. He's the ground of all reality. If you've been walking with him for 50 years, go deeper, go deeper. You'll never get to the bottom of knowing who Jesus is and just how much he loves you. Enough said. Amen. Please rise as we close in song.
I 